This is Church History in 10 Minutes, where you can learn everything that you need to know about church history in 10 minutes or less. Some days I'm ashamed of the man that I've been. I can't seem to take my mind off my sin. My name is Aaron Land. I'm the lead pastor of Waleska First Baptist Church, and I teach New Testament theology at the Global Institute for Theological Training. It's our fourth episode now, and I'm sure that all of you have figured out that we in no way are finishing each episode in 10 minutes or less. I think it's probably somewhere closer to 12 or 13, but let's face it, those numbers just don't have the same ream to them. This week, we're going to be looking at the third century, and more importantly, the challenges that it brought to the church persecution, apostasy, and what to do with those who deny their faith. And finally, we're going to look at Constantine, the single most important moment in church history. The last few years of the second century were relatively peaceful for the church. The third century, however, would see the fiercest and most widespread persecution in the church's history. Septimius Severus became emperor in 193 AD. Early in his reign, the empire was facing troubles. They were facing increasing attacks from the barbarians to the north who lived beyond the Rhine and the Danube rivers. They had been weakened internally by civil war, and the empire as a whole was suffering economically. The emperor believed that the answer to these problems was to unite the empire religiously. Septimius Severus developed a policy called syncretism. And syncretism is the merging or the blending together of various religious elements. So Severus decreed that all religions would be legal so long as they acknowledged that the ancient Roman god, the unconquered sun, or Sol Invictus, would reign above them all. There were two religions that refused to conform to this decree of syncretism, and those were Judaism and Christianity. So in the year 202 AD, the emperor decreed that it was illegal to convert to Christianity or to teach Christianity. Now this set a new precedent in persecution, This was a big step up in in persecution from Trajan's policy. Now, Rome could take aggressive action against new converts and their teachers. So within a relatively short period of time, new believers and these great Christian teachers began to be martyred. Irenaeus of Lyons, uh, who we learned about last week, was martyred in the year 202 for teaching new believers. Clement of Alexandria was exiled, and many others were martyred for their continued faith in Christ. One of the most famous martyrdoms of the time was that of Perpetua. Perpetua and her four companions were charged with being new converts to Christianity in the year 203 AD. And if you've never read or heard this story before, then let me tell you, Perpetua was one incredible woman. She was pregnant when they arrested her, and she was afraid, actually, that that the Romans would take it easy on her because of her pregnancy. So she began to pray to God that he would help her to have her baby early so that she could face martyrdom with strength and pride and without fear. And God answered her prayer. 
She has the baby in her eight month of pregnancy. She gives it to another Christian family for adoption. And Rome tortured Perpetua and her companions to try to get them to recant of their faith. They would not. So they were taken into an arena to face wild beasts. And actually, Perpetua, freshly off of having a baby, outlasted everyone else. And the last beast that they put against her was a wild bull, and it gored Perpetua and knocked her to the ground. And she stood up, and and she actually asked the Roman soldiers if she could have a moment to retie her hair, because she said that loose hair was a sign of mourning, and she told them that she wanted everyone to see her for the joyful day that this was. And finally, when no beast could kill her, the Roman soldiers killed her by the sword. It was that type of persecution that was going on under this new policy. Septimius Severus died, and for the next 40 years, there was relative peace for the Christians. Though Trajan and and Septimius Severus's policies of syncretism were still in effect. But in 249, Decius took the imperial purple. Decius was an old-school Roman. The empire seemed to be in shambles, and Decius strongly believed that that this weakened condition was due in large part to the empire's abandonment of the ancient Roman gods. Decius believed that the glory and power of Rome were inseparably tied to the worship of the ancient gods. Decius wanted Christianity stopped in its tracks, but Decius had a different policy than the emperors before him. You see, he was the first emperor to realize that killing Christians just served to make the church stronger. So he didn't want Christians to be killed. He wanted them tortured into submission. Decius's goal was not to make martyrs, but to make apostates. So Decius decreed that every person in the empire was going to have to offer sacrifice to the ancient gods, and they would have to burn incense to a statue of the emperor. Upon doing this, they would receive a certificate called a labellum from Rome. And anyone who didn't have one of these certificates would be considered an outlaw, And they would be arrested and subjected to torture until they recanted of their faith and sacrificed to the ancient gods. And the thing is this, Christians were largely unprepared for this new style of persecution. After 40 years of of peace, Christianity had had sort of lost its battle-hardened readiness. Christians responded to Decius' decree in various ways. Some ran immediately to obey Rome's commands. Others went and uh, bought fake certificates so that they could lie and say that they had sacrificed the gods. Others were arrested and they stood firm under persecution for a time, but eventually they broke under the pressure. And then there were some who stood firm long enough to be released from prison. Remember, Decius had no desire to make martyrs. So if Christians endured suffering and torture long enough, then they would be released. And this actually created this new title of honor among Christians because those who had persevered and those who were released after being tortured began to be called confessors. And they were actually held in very high esteem in the church. But this persecution also created one of the first major controversies in the church. And the controversy surrounded what was to be done with those Christians who had lapsed. And this was a complicated issue that was not easily resolved. In fact, it created deep divides within the church that would last for decades. Some believed that those who had lapsed and repented should be readmitted into the church pretty easily. 
Others believed that they shouldn't be readmitted at all. And then there were still others that believed that there should be some sort of process of readmittance. Uh, In other words, there should be acts of penance to sort of earn a readmission into the church. In fact, it's this very controversy, which is often called the Novation Controversy, that would ultimately lead to the penitential system of Roman Catholicism that the Protestant reformers would protest so ardently against. Now, after Decius' death, Christians once again enjoyed about 40 years of peace. But in the year 295 AD, they would face their fiercest and their final persecution under the reign of the emperor Diocletian. Diocletian became emperor in the year 284 AD, and he actually restructured the entire empire. He was a great administrator and he was a great leader. So he divided the empire into four regions that would be ruled uh, essentially by four emperors with himself as sort of the supreme emperor. And one of his co-rulers was a man named Galerius, a, a military man, and another was named Constantius Chlorus. Galerius hated Christians because many would refuse military service. Now, there were many Christians within the legions, but many were pacifists, and they believed that it was their right to refuse that military service. Uh, Constantius, on the other hand, was very tolerant and even compassionate towards Christians. And this, this difference in opinion towards Christians created a sharp divide among the imperial leadership. In the year 295 AD, Galerius convinced the supreme emperor, Diocletian, to expel all Christians from the Roman legions. And then in the year 303 AD, Galerius convinced Diocletian to take this persecution even further. And so the emperor made an edict that Christian homes and churches and businesses would be taken or destroyed. Christian books, literature, art would all be burned and destroyed. And Christians would be segregated off from other Romans. And this persecution became severe. In fact, only in the regions under Constantius Chlorus rule was there any sort of respite for Christians. Finally, in the year 304 AD, Galerius took control of the empire. But the divide in the empire was growing. In fact, the legions loved Constantius Chlorus and his son, who was named Constantine, a young promising general. Now, when Constantius Chlorus died in 305 AD, the legions actually proclaimed Constantine to be the new co-ruler. Now, at this point, we have to sort of buckle up because things move pretty fast. Galerius died in the year 311 AD, and just five days before his death, he made an edict of tolerance towards Christians. And this was in large part to try to sort of buy back their favor for his son who would rule in his place. But really, it's, it's too late. The dividing lines in the empire had already been drawn. Many Christians were beginning to see Constantine as their savior, and they were loyal to him as their ruler. And Constantine was happy to have the support. In the years after his father's death, Constantine had been camping in Gaul and strengthening his forces. So when Galerius' son, Maxentius, took the throne of his father, his fate was really already sealed. In the year 312 AD, Constantine left Gaul, crossed the Alps, and marched on Rome. Now, it's at this point that history gets a little bit shady. Remember that most Roman historians wrote in favor of the emperors, and we can see why. Freedom of speech was not always a luxury that that these historians enjoyed. 
But historians give us different accounts of what happened the night before the final battle for Rome, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Some historians say that Constantine had a dream. Some say that he had a vision. Some saw that he, uh, say that he saw a sign up in the clouds in the night sky. But whatever the case, Constantine instructed his soldiers the next day to place a symbol on their shields. And this symbol was a superimposition of the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are the first two letters in the name of Christ. And this symbol became their standard on their shields and flags as they defeated Maxentius the next day on the Milvian Bridge and conquered Rome. In 313 AD, Constantine and Licinius met, and they issued what was called the Edict of Milan, which officially brought the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire to an end. Constantine changed everything. But the real question is, was it for the better or was it for the worse? You see, while many Christians believe that Constantine was the savior and protector of the church, he continued worshiping the ancient gods of Rome for years after his victory. But Constantine understood the power that Christians gave him. Much like politicians today covet the votes of the so-called religious right, Constantine understood the political power provided through Christianity and its many followers. No doubt the church was changing. Now this ragtag, poverty-stricken, broken and beaten group of social outcasts had become the ruling party. But how would that change Christianity? How would Christians respond? Join us next week as we begin to look at the imperial church under the reign of Constantine. And as we look at the monastic reaction to the imperial church. With all this extra-